And we are in our Exodus series. We're in our Exodus series. We've been making our way through. We're up to beginning of chapter five this week. And along the way, we've been debunking some myths so that next time you watch an Exodus movie, the the Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments or something like that, you can be that person in the group throughout the movie yelling out, wrong, wrong, not true, never happened, fiction, fiction, you can be that person now. So we'll see if we can pick up uh, any more of those myth-busting facts today. And as we rejoin our story, Moses and Aaron have journeyed into Egypt. They have met with the elders, the leaders of the Israelite people, who are in bondage as slaves. Moses has performed the miraculous signs that God told him to perform. The Israelite elders have believed that God has sent them and they have responded by bowing down and worshiping God. As Moses and Aaron passed on the message that the Lord has heard their cries and Moses has been sent to deliver them from their oppressors. And if you read way, way ahead in the story, in the Exodus story, way, way ahead, like a couple of books ahead, and you get to the part where Israel is about to finally enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, you'll find that the Bible tells us there were tons of Israeli men who came out of Egypt in the Exodus under the leadership of Moses. Now what that tells us is that the edict to kill all the Hebrew boys, the edict edict which forced Moses' parents to hide him in the reeds, that edict was clearly done away with at some point. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a normal number of Hebrew men to come out in the Exodus. I'll share with you my, my educated guess at what happened. That edict was put into place right around the same time that the Israelis were enslaved. So the order was given, kill every newborn Hebrew boy, and also we're going to begin enslaving the Jewish people. And I think that as the slavery apparatus got up and running, as the Israeli slaves began building these big construction projects like the store cities of Pithom and Ramses that we read about in that first message, it quickly became apparent how beneficial it was for the country to have a slave labor force that was, let's say, 300,000 to 500,000 men strong. The benefit to the Egyptian economy would have been tremendous. They would have been able to do these massive state building projects with almost no labor costs. And so it would have benefited Egypt much the same way that America's economy benefited from slave labor during the first few centuries of that country's existence. And when you understand all of this, it gives you another layer of understanding why Pharaoh thought it was an absolutely ridiculous request that he risked losing his entire slave labor force, which was such a boon to the Egyptian economy. So that's one of the factors in play here as well. As we pick up our story in chapter five, verse one, it says afterward, after they had met with the elders, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, so they go and meet with Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Per God's instructions, Moses requests that all the Israelis be temporarily released from slavery and allowed to travel to Mount Sinai to offer sacrifices to the Lord. We'll learn a couple of verses from now that Mount Sinai was three days journey away when traveling with children and cattle and all that sort of stuff. Now obviously again, God's plan wasn't to give the Israelis a week off and then have them go back to slavery, but God is having Moses and Aaron start with this request 
to reveal just how unreasonable and harsh Pharaoh is. He's going to say, a week? I can't give you a week off. You guys have been slaves for 80 years and you want a whole week? We don't usually give that to you. You've been slaves for 200 years. So they just want to, want to show how unreasonable he's being. Some of you are probably like, I had a boss like that one time, actually. Verse 2, it says, and Pharaoh said... <laughs> Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? God's going to answer that question real soon in the form of ten plagues. But remember, Pharaoh believed himself to be a god. So he was thinking, well, I'm God, so why should I do what your God says? As the physical incarnation of Horus, the son of Ra, Pharaoh was considered to be a central figure in maintaining what the Egyptians called ma'at, which was the order of things, such as seasons, rains, and tides, and all that sort of stuff. And so everybody else in the palace at this moment, during this conversation between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, everybody else in the room at this moment believes Pharaoh is a god. So it's not surprising that at this point he responds with incredulity toward men that he thinks are Hebrew hicks who've come in from the wilderness to make a ludicrous demand on behalf of the Israelis. He says, I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go. And then here it is, three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And you can pick up on a sort of warning there in the words of Moses and Aaron. They're telling Pharaoh, God has told us to do this, and if we don't obey the Lord, there might be serious consequences for us. And the implication is that if Pharaoh stops them from obeying the Lord, he is risking these serious consequences. He is risking pestilence or the sword, and he's going to experience both of those things during the 10 plagues. But you'll recall earlier in this series, we looked at the issue of the potential location of Mount Sinai. Where, where is it? And the Bible tells us right here, it takes three days to get from the eastern Nile Delta, that region of Goshen where the Israelis were, to Mount Sinai where he wanted them to go. This, this is not an, a figurative or metaphorical number. There are two other places in Exodus where God specifically mentions it's a three days journey for the Israelites. And as we said, you got to keep in mind that figure assumes a group of over a million people. It assumes there's children involved. It assumes there are cattle involved. And I don't know if you've ever traveled with children. If you make it an hour without a potty break, I mean, you're doing really, really well. Now imagine taking with you a flock of sheep, herd of goats. You've got to stop. You've got to water them. They've got to rest. The point is, how far are you getting in three days with a million people and cattle and kids? Not very far, not very far at all. And so this is the main reason that the two most popular suggested sites for Mount Sinai, we talked about Jabal al-Laws and Jabal Musa, simply don't work. You just cannot cover that amount of distance in these circumstances in three days. It's absolutely impossible. You cannot do it. And so we believe that God was being literal when he said three times in the book of Exodus, Mount Sinai is three days journey from where the Israelis were at this time. Verse four, then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now and you make them rest from their labor. So ever since you two arrived in Egypt, my Israeli slaves have been distracted. Their productivity has gone down because of whatever you're telling them. Just leave them alone. The attitude of Pharaoh here 
looms over believers, over you and I to this day. It's that constant unspoken pressure, that voice, that stress that we feel that is rooted in the message, there's no time for you to worship the Lord. You've got too much work to do. You don't have time to go to church this week. You don't have time to pray. You don't have time to go to a small group meeting. You've got kids' activities and so many things to do around the house and emails to respond to and social media to stay current on and There's no time, there's no time for you to go worship. That's a waste. You tithe? What a waste, what a waste of money. And it's the same mentality that we saw in Judas Iscariot, didn't we? Perhaps you'll recall the time Jesus was in Bethany and Mary took the alabaster flask of fragrant oil that was worth a year's wages and she anointed Jesus with its full contents. And what did Judas say? I put it on your outlines. Judas said, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. And then John's gospel tells us that Judas wasn't really concerned for the poor. He said this because he was overseeing the finances of Jesus' ministry. He had the money bag and he used to steal from it on a regular basis. Later in his high priestly prayer in John 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples and for all future believers, including you and I, he refers to Judas in that prayer, John 17, 12, as the son of perdition. The word perdition in the Greek literally means waste. It means waste. So understand this. Judas looked at Mary's extravagant act of worship and Judas said, what a waste. What a waste. That was good money. Jesus looked at Judas and said, what a waste. What a waste. Because Judas, like you and I, was created to know God and enjoy him forever. That's why he was made. He was created to worship, and so were you. Our human potential is most fully realized when we're worshiping Jesus. There's nothing higher, there's nothing greater we can do with our time on this earth. It is the absolute best use of our time and resources. Judas didn't get that. So when he saw someone extravagantly worshiping Jesus, he said, what a waste. Jesus looked at Judas and said, no, you're a waste. Your life is a waste. It's a waste, Judas. It's a waste to waste the opportunity to worship and instead choose to spend your time and energy on something truly wasteful. You know, once we belong to Jesus, Satan can't have us. The the battle for our eternal soul is over. We belong to the Lord. So Satan moves on to plan B. And plan B, once we belong to Jesus, is he wants to minimize our efficacy that means he looks at us and he says, okay, you want to follow Jesus, that's fine, but just, just, I don't want you to be effective. I don't want you to have an impact on anybody else. I don't want you to have an impact on your spouse. I don't want you to have an impact on your children. I don't want you to minister to anybody else. It's a containment program is what Satan's strategy becomes. How can I limit the damage that you're going to do to my kingdom, says Satan? How can I limit the good that you're going to do for the kingdom of God? How can I make you completely ineffective? And he seems to have great success in our lives these days at simply filling our lives with so much meaningless 
stuff that we have no time and no energy, no resources for the things of the kingdom. We're just too busy. It's a waste is what that voice says over and over. And in this battle of wills between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, God tells Moses, stand firm, Moses. Stand firm on this declaration. We must go and worship the Lord. We must. And as Moses stood firm, God took care of the rest. It's one of the great truths of the Christian life. You probably found this to be true if If we commit to give God the leftovers in our life, we'll rarely find anything left over to give. But if we'll commit to put him first, we'll find that there's enough. It works that way with time, works that way with money, works that way with energy. If you keep waiting until you have some spare time, some spare money, some spare energy, guess what, you never will. You never will. Oh, I got to the end of this month and I had 10% left over. That's a great, I guess I'll tithe this month. It's not gonna happen. It's never gonna happen. But if you'll put God first, you'll find that you will have enough in the Lord's estimation. You'll have enough. So write this down. God calls us to put him first in all things while Satan tries to tell us we're wasting our time, our money, etc. God calls us to put him first in all things, but Satan tries to tell us we're wasting our time, wasting our money, wasting our energy, wasting our resources. So please understand this. If you take something from today, take this. In the scriptures, the voice that was saying, what a waste to worship the Lord. What a waste to put that time and energy into it. It's Pharaoh, who's a picture of the king of the world, a picture of Satan in this story. And the other person who has that attitude is Judas Iscariot the one who betrayed Jesus, who was fully possessed by Satan when he did that. That's the voice in scripture who's saying it's a waste to worship the Lord. So be very careful when you listen to that voice. Understand whose voice that really is. Well, to teach the Israelis a lesson, to warn them of the dangers of listening to Moses and Aaron, to tell them, hey, listen, you you don't have time to be idle and listen to these men filling your head with these dreams of freedom. You don't have time for that as my slaves. Verse six tells us what Pharaoh did next. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. The way bricks were made in Egypt at this time included the use of straw as a binding agent, sort of like mini rebar in each brick. And as that straw would decompose, it would actually become an acid that would actually strengthen the integrity of the brick as well. And up to this point, the Israelis had been provided with the straw that they needed to make the bricks. But in order to send them a message, in order to put them in their place, Pharaoh now decrees that they have to gather their own straw. And it gets worse. In verse 8, he says, And you shall lay up on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it. So despite having to gather their own straw, the Israelis would still be expected to produce the same number of bricks per day, which of course would be impossible. And then he says, For they are idle. He's saying they're lazy. Therefore, that's why they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it 
and let them not regard false words. Pharaoh says, I'm going to increase their workload so that they understand they don't have time to listen to this nonsense from Moses and Aaron. It was also a strategic move by Pharaoh to turn Moses and Aaron into villains in the eyes of the Hebrew people. And as we shall see, it worked. Verse 10, and the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. So if you can imagine the situation, wherever they're assigned to work on projects in Egypt, they're just trying to get through today. They're just trying to make this number of bricks today. They don't have time to go harvest fields and vegetation and leave the, the crops out to dry so that it can become straw that they can use in a few weeks. They need a solution today. So they're just looking for, for anything, any little bit of a, a plant, a stubble, a stem, something they can use to make these bricks. Verse 13, and the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, these are Israeli officers who were put over their own people, they were beaten and were asked, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick, both yesterday and today, as before? So the Hebrew officers are beaten with the expectation that their beating will motivate them to drive their countrymen to higher productivity. Verse 15, then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, would you underline Pharaoh? and I'll tell you why in a minute, saying, why are you dealing thus with your servants? There's no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Notice who the children of Israel cry out to. They cry out to Pharaoh. Who should they have cried out to? Should have cried out to the Lord. Pharaoh didn't love them. The Lord did. Pharaoh didn't care about them. The Lord did. So too, when you or I are being overworked on the job, under-equipped for the work we've been given, having trouble with our boss or manager or supervisor, our Pharaoh, it's so easy to cry out to a person. It's so easy to talk to someone about it when the one we truly need to cry out to is the Lord. And so if you're in that situation, cry out to the Lord. I'm not saying don't talk to your boss. I'm saying seek the Lord and get direction from him. And then if he tells you to go talk to your boss, then you go do it. But don't make the same mistake the Israelis did. And really get this. This is what they did. They cried out to their oppressor for deliverance. They cried out to the one who was oppressing them for deliverance. Cry out to your deliverer for deliverance, not your oppressor. As the hymn says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We suffer unnecessarily because we don't take it to the Lord. And I want to read you some verses from Isaiah 30. They're going to be on your outlines. This is from a time in the future in Israel's history when they were under threat. They're under military threat. And instead of seeking the Lord, they sought safety and help 
in the form of a military treaty with Egypt. Now, Egypt, as we know, is a picture of the world. And so what was happening is Israel was seeking help and reassurance and hope and security from the world instead of from the Lord. And in Isaiah 30, we find out what God thinks about that. He says, woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning to him, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In returning to me and resting in me, you're gonna find deliverance. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. So he says, if you just come back to me and seek me and rest in me, I would take care of it all, but you would not. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. The Lord's gonna keep waiting for you to realize you need to come to him. And if you will, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. But they wouldn't take counsel from God. They took counsel from men. And in Israel's history, it led to disaster. So if the whip is cracking, if the back is aching, if you're being asked to do more than is reasonable, cry out to the Lord for direction. Seek him. Seek him and he'll lead you. Verse 17, but he, Pharaoh, said, you are idle, idle, therefore you say. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given to you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. So the children of Israel know they're in a bad situation because they've been given an impossible task. They cried out to Pharaoh and that didn't help, so they're gonna take it out on their pastors. Moses and Aaron, verse 20. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them and they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent. The literal translation is you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Thanks for nothing, Moses and Aaron. You came talking about how God is gonna deliver us, God's gonna set us free, but all you've done is make our situation worse. Suffice to say, this is not how Moses thought this was going to go. I can't help but wonder if Moses starts thinking at this point, 40 years ago, I thought I was gonna deliver the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and that ended in disaster for me. Ended with me fleeing for my life out of Egypt. Have I seriously come back here 40 years later just to have the same thing happen again? Had to cross his mind. Verse 22, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you've sent me? Why? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Why, Lord? Why? Maybe you can relate. We saw a lot of doubt and defiance and faithlessness from Moses when God called him to this task. But here, unbelievably, here we begin to see the secret behind his future greatness. Moses sought the Lord over and over again. Over and over again. Write this down and we'll unpack it 
The secret to Moses' greatness was his relationship with the Lord. Here's what he did. He talked to God when most would have talked to men. He talked to God when most would have talked to men. How easy would it have been in this situation for Moses to just grab Aaron and be like, Aaron, I just need to vent. I just need to get this out. What in the world is going on? What, what is going on? What is God doing? This is no plan here. This is all falling apart. This is awful. What kind of God is this? Would have been so easy. He had Aaron right there. He had his brother right there. And Moses doesn't do that. He goes to the Lord. When things got difficult or complicated or confusing, Moses sought the Lord. He didn't cry out to the world, his friends or the leaders of the world. He cried out to God. And God loves that. He loves that. Here's why. Because when we cry out to the Lord, even in frustration in these situations, it reveals a belief within us that he is the one who has the answers. He's the one who knows. He's the one who can help. He's the one with insight. He is the comforter. He is the problem solver. When we go to the Lord with our problems, challenges, hurts, and frustrations, it honors him. And when we don't, it reveals a belief that we don't really think he can help. He either doesn't want to or isn't able to. It reveals that belief in us when we don't go to him. Moses goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, what the heck? What the heck? I did everything you told me to do. And all it did was make everything worse. I love that Pastor Moses doesn't hop on social media and, and write a passive-aggressive post to vent his frustrations. He doesn't seek affirmation from his followers. He doesn't post a selfie with a caption like, every leader knows you gotta tune out the haters if you wanna walk in greatness. Hashtag destiny, hashtag not today Satan. He doesn't do that. He just goes to the Lord. He goes to the Lord and he pours out his heart in honesty. Nobody else knows he's doing it. He just goes to the Lord personally. That's the secret to his greatness. It's the secret to greatness for you and I as well. A relationship with the Lord that's genuine and intimate. Continuing to chapter verse six, verse one, we read, then the Lord said to Moses, now. Would you underline that word? Now. Now that circumstances are aligned for my glory to be most clearly seen. Now that it's clear there's no hope other than me. Now that everybody understands they're powerless to fix the situation. This is Romans 8.28 stuff. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We look at the situation and we think God's left the building. Everything's just getting worse. But God is, he's just moving pieces around the chessboard. We're playing checkers, he's playing chess. He's working on hearts, he's working on attitudes, he's working on things behind the scenes. And we say, well, well, yeah, but how do I know that? How do I know that God's doing that? We can't know the specifics, but we do know Romans 8.28. And the Lord says, that's enough. That's all you need to know right now. I promised you I'm doing something good. I promised you that. And you know I never lie. So in those spaces where you don't have the information you want, you fill them with trust. You make the choice to trust God. When there's a gap in the information, there's an explanation and it seems like parts of it are redacted, they're just covered in black ink and you're like, that's the part that matters the most. It's the explanation of why, what's going on. God says, fill it with faith. 
Fill those gaps with faith. Make the choice to be a person of faith. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Moses, when I'm through with Pharaoh, he's going to be making you guys leave. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, or Yahweh, I was not known to them. Now I need to share with you, these two verses are semi-controversial because when you just read it as we did, it comes across as though the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did not know the name of God. They didn't know the name Yahweh or whatever it originally was, and that Moses was the first to learn it. But there's a substantive, significant argument that the original Hebrew actually communicates the opposite of the translation that appears in most of our Bibles. These Hebrew scholars argue that the verse should really be rendered more like this. It should read, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, which means the God of heaven or Almighty God, and my name is Yahweh. Did I not make myself known to them? The implication is that he did. And so again, I'm not going to get into the details. I'm doing the research on this stuff so I can just share the bottom line with you guys and we can keep moving through the text. It's not a big deal. It doesn't affect theology, but I think we need to be aware of the possible mistranslation just so you don't go off on any bunny trails and say, wait a minute, did nobody know the name of God before Moses? It's like, yes, they did. We're not 100% sure of the meaning of this verse I know that's not exciting, but you do need to know it while we're there. We'll continue on into verse 4 and just begin to underline all the times here that the Lord says, I. In verse 4, he says, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians kept in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. You see, the star of the book of Exodus is not Moses. The star of the book of Exodus is not Pharaoh or the children of Israel. The star of the book of Exodus is the Lord. And so often we become discouraged or depressed because we assume that we are the star of our story. But we're not. We're not. The Lord is the star of our story as well. Him receiving the glory, His will being accomplished, his name being exalted, him being glorified in us. That's what it's all about. The the universe and our lives don't revolve around us, they revolve around him. And he has parts for us to play in the next act after this life. And they're glorious parts, but they require preparation. We're not ready yet. That's why we're all still alive. There are things we still need to learn. And when we don't understand that, we become downcast because we think This life is the main performance and we're the star of the show. And so we look at our lives and the production of our lives and we go, well, this part of the place sucks. But when we understand that this is not the main performance and that this isn't even a play about us, we're able to deal with the difficult seasons of life because we understand that, oh, no, 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 what we're doing now is we're learning our lines and we're growing into the part that we're going to play for eternity in a play that is all about Jesus. So would you write this down? The Lord is the star of the book of Exodus and our lives too. The Lord is the star of the book of Exodus 
and our lives too. It's just like exercising. Perhaps you, you haven't done it for a long time and you do it and your body hurts and you're like, oh, this feels, this feels so wrong. I'm never going to do this again. Something's horribly wrong. And perhaps that's what would happen if you didn't understand that, well, well yeah, as, as the muscle breaks down, it hurts and then it builds back stronger than it was before. That, that's how the process works. And so in life, if we don't understand that that's what God is doing, he's making us more like Jesus. He's getting us ready to play the part he has for us in eternity. If we don't understand that, we just go, this hurts. Something's wrong. I thought this was supposed to be a play about me being comfortable and me being happy all the time and everything being good for me. It doesn't seem to be going that way. What's wrong? That's not the plot line. That's not the plot line. This isn't the main performance. And now the Lord is going to describe the process of salvation. So remember, Egypt is a picture of the world and the slavery of the Israelis is a picture of the bondage to sin that you and I were all born into. This is what the Lord offers to each of us through Jesus. Tune in, verse six. Therefore, this is God speaking, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And then underline all these I wills. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm or with mighty power and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The Lord has brought us out from the bondage and the burden of sin. He's redeemed us with the mighty power of the resurrection, but he's also redeemed us with great judgments. Now, what great judgment was involved in our salvation? Jesus, the sinless son of God, took on all our sin and was judged by the Father in our place on the cross. And because Jesus did that, we've been adopted as children of God. Why? So we can know him, love him, and glorify him. And it's interesting to me that in this passage, God distinguishes a difference between Israel's bondage and the burdens that Israel experienced in that bondage. He uses those separate words, bondage and burdens. They were experiencing burdens in their bondage. It's a reference to the load that they had to carry as slaves. And what might that be a reference to in, in our lives? I believe it's a reference to the guilt and the shame that every person carries. The guilt and shame from sin that only God can relieve. The truth is forgiveness is man's greatest need. Forgiveness. That's why it's been rightly said that man's greatest need is God's greatest deed. There's a burden of, of deep down guilt and shame that stains our lives and can only be washed out by the blood of Jesus. I know I talk about this a lot, but the older I get, the more amazed I become at my sinfulness and at God's goodness. And the more aware I become of just how sinful I am, the more grateful I become that I've been forgiven. It's like every year a little bit more like, yeah, I really needed to be forgiven. No, 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 I, I really, really needed to be forgiven. It gets like that year after year. And so whenever Satan tries to bombard me with that old guilt and shame, I'm able to say, you know, it's absolutely true. 
I'm a sinner still. But the Lord has loved me and forgiven me anyway. He's loved me and forgiven me anyway. And there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm so thankful for that. Verse 8, God continues to give his promises. He says, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. The Lord promised the Israelis that he would direct them. He would lead them to where he wanted them to be once they had been set free. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. See, Jesus similarly gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to lead us, guide us, and direct us moment by moment, day by day. He didn't leave us alone. He didn't just deliver us. He directs us and leads us. And I love the Lord's closing statement. After telling Moses all that he's going to do, all the, the parallel work of salvation that he's done for us, he says, I am the Lord. And he's using there the tetragrammaton, the ineffable name of God, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. It's his name. And we've talked before about how the Bible makes it clear that there are many gods there's many different spiritual entities, but here the Lord lays out what makes him unique. He's saying, I'm the only God who cares about people enough to save them. And I'm the only God who has the power to save them. I'm the God above all gods. I'm more loving and I'm more wonderful than you could possibly imagine. And in using his name at the end, he says, I am the Lord. He says that at the beginning and the end. What he's saying in between those two statements is he's saying, this is who I am, these verses. This is my character. If you want to know who Yahweh is, it's this. This is what I do. I will, I will, I will, I will. This is who Yahweh is. There's no one like him. And I had you underline all of those I wills because I want you to notice one thing. There is no if you. There's no if you. There's only I will, I will, I will. The only role the children of Israel had was to believe that God would do what he said he would do. We'll see that they had to believe him and, and pack when he said, get ready because you're going to be going real soon. They had to believe him and paint the blood of a lamb on their doorposts when he told them to. They had to believe him and follow the cloud by day and the pillar of fire of night through the wilderness. And those are just a few examples. God is going to do it all in this Exodus story. And all they'll have to do is believe him. And they're going to make that as difficult as humanly possible. But the same is still true for us. The Lord does it all. The Lord is the one who fights for us. Our job is to believe him and stand in faith. I really encourage you to one day, maybe take some time this week, just go on Bible Gateway or Blue Letter and just do a search for the word stand in all the epistles in the New Testament. You're gonna find that exhortation over and over and over again. And I love that because the Lord doesn't say, listen, when you're under pressure, when you're being attacked, when your family's having issues, you just need to get really, really busy. The Lord responds to the man who stresses. The Lord responds to the man who makes his anxiety evident. It doesn't say that. 
It doesn't say the Lord responds to a tornado of, of panic. The, the command you find over and over and over again is stand. Stand firm. Stand strong. And I love it because it reminds me my job in life is not to stress and take on anxiety about things in my life as though I am God. My job is to stand in faith, to stand in faith and hold strong in faith because the Lord has said, I will, I will. May we always remember that the gospel is not if you. The gospel is I will. The gospel is, as Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. The gospel is so radical, we, we have a hard time with it. We learned that when we were studying our way through um, that book that we just did that I'm totally spacing on, the Pauline epistle. Galatians, that's the one, that's the one. Love that book. We learned this when we were going through Galatians. We keep wanting to add something to the gospel because it's so, so radical. But the gospel, is, the gospel is the furious love of God toward us. The gospel just says, I will. I will. I will save you. I will redeem you. Lord, I'm really difficult to work with. I know. I will. Lord, I got a lot of guilt and shame. I know. I will. I will. Lord, I, I don't know if I can live up to the standard. I, I know. I will. Jesus lived up to the standard. Jesus died in your place. God says over and over in the gospel, I will. When you make the choice to put God first in your life in any area, I'm going to say this in closing, you can expect some pushback from Satan. Just as Pharaoh pushed back against the Israelis. Don't respond like the children of Israel did. Immediately going to faithlessness. Well, I guess there was no point. I had a devotional time with my kids and, and they were all awful the next day. Guess we're never doing that again. I tithed once the next day, my fridge broke. So much for the promises of God. Have a little backbone. Have a little faith. Stand strong in the promises of God. God is moving pieces around. So many times we're thinking, oh, this, this is awful. This is too much to bear. God isn't in this. And God's saying, no, no, no. I just want it to be really obvious when I come through for you that it was me. You stand in faith. That's your job. And God says, I will. So keep stepping out in faith. And if you're carrying guilt and shame from your sin, still, maybe you're saved and you're still carrying that. Listen, only the blood of Jesus can wash that out. That's why we want to take communion every week. We need to be reminded on a weekly basis, hey man, that the things that have caused me the greatest shame and regret and guilt in my life have been paid for by the blood of Jesus. And communion every week reminds us it's still paid for. It's still covered by the blood of Jesus. I'm still free. I'm still forgiven. And we need to hear that over and over and over again. So make sure you take communion today and just thank God that he loves you, that your sin is paid for, that you're forgiven, and you stand in that in faith. And then lastly, if you're trying to be God and fix a situation when it's becoming clear that you can't, I would just encourage you to read over those verses from Isaiah 30 on your outline again and understand what the Lord is saying. He's saying, would you seek me? 
Would you cry out to me? And then just stand, just be still, just rest, and let the God who says, I will, take care of it. Let him do that. Rest in that. Give your burdens to the Lord today. I don't want anybody moving on to eat food and have a potluck and leave here tonight with a burden because you didn't give it to the Lord. You have that opportunity right now. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for your kindness and for your character that we see in your word. Father, we see that you're a God who, who loves us, who cares about his people because not only have you forgiven us, but Lord, you want us to understand that we're free from guilt and shame. You don't want to just minister to our eternal needs. You want to minister to our deepest emotional need for forgiveness right here and right now. And so I pray for anyone who's being limited, who's being haunted by guilt or shame this evening. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that the power of the cross would cover that guilt and shame in a more real way than they've ever experienced. That the words that Jesus said from the cross to Telestai, it is finished, paid in full, would sink deep into our hearts this evening. It's been taken care of by the blood of Jesus. We're free, the burden has been lifted. And so Lord, any accusing voice we hear, we're able to say it's absolutely true. I did do those things. I do still struggle with sin, but God loves me anyway. He's forgiven me anyway. And he says I'm free. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that's me. No condemnation. Father, we just thank you for your love and for your care that you invite us to give our burdens to you. So enable us by your spirit to do that this evening, to release burdens, to experience joy, the joy that only you can give, the joy that comes from being right with our maker and with our God. Help us to be like Moses. Help us to be great like Moses who went to you over and over again in honesty. May we honor you this evening by coming to you with our needs and, and with our frustrations and with our burdens and in so doing, reveal that we believe you can help, Lord. May you be honored in our prayer and in our praises this evening, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. 
And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.